Today I'll be reading from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 through 28. Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols, or with their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David my servant will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Father God, thank you for the ways in which you have revealed yourself Lord, throughout Scripture. I thank you that it is throughout Scripture that we see these revelations, Lord, clearly through prophecy, Lord. I pray that you would give us a sense of awe, Lord, at what you are doing, what you have done, what you will do, Lord, and what you're telling us about that. Lord, we are not in the dark, Lord. You have revealed so much to us, Lord. Just open the eyes of our hearts to this, this these beautiful truths that we're going to hear about today, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. There are a lot of challenges to uh, to trying to prepare a series like this, but I, I got to tell you, and I really, I really hope you understand that one of those challenges is not finding pertinent scripture. It, it just is not. It's the opposite problem, and. and it always astonishes me when I look at, at this whole matter of the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament, that when Jesus came to his own people, they received him not, and they, and they denied that he was the long-promised Messiah, even though everything in the Old Testament pointed to him. This morning we're in part two of Christ the long-promised King, the Son of David, uh, we're going to see an awful lot of Scripture. And if you're kind of dazed by the amount of Scripture that we're looking at, don't worry. You might write down some references, but don't, don't be overwhelmed. As I said last week, the goal of this series is twofold. It is to demonstrate clearly, first, that Jesus is the long-promised Christ who is spoken of throughout the entire Old Testament. Secondly, It's to demonstrate that the salvation, the restoration to God that comes only through that same Christ is clearly proclaimed in both Testaments of the Bible. In fact, in all its aspects, that 
substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is in both Testaments. At the end of our time last week, I asked you to keep a sharp eye out for a very critical connection between, really between those two marvelous truths. The connection between the coming King and the coming restoration of sinners to God. This is what Israel completely missed when Jesus came. They, they understood the first part of that, that Messiah would come as a reigning king. What they did not accept and were not willing to accept is that he came to save sinners from the judgment of his father. From the judgment of, in fact, of the triune God. From his judgment. Watch for that connection because it's everywhere. There, I, I can't find a passage that isn't, I can't find a passage that promises deliverance through Messiah that isn't surrounded on both sides with declarations of judgment for sin. And I, and I challenge you to look. You won't find it. The Old Testament prophecies concerning the long-promised king declare with very great consistency that he is going to restore to God a people who have been estranged from God and who fully deserve God's fierce judgment. Any notion that the long-promised king would come to a people who deserved him is absolutely foreign to the Bible from cover to cover. Both testaments of God's Word declare with equal clarity that you cannot and will not be included in the glorious everlasting kingdom of the long-promised king unless he and he alone first takes care of your sin problem. Now, not every Old Testament prophecy clearly explains how he would take care of our sin problem. But the prophets, the prophets proclaim with perfect consistency that he's the one who will do it. That he's not only the coming reigning king, he is the coming savior of his people and of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In a couple of weeks, we will see Specific Old Testament passages that make it crystal clear how he will accomplish this. That, the name of the, the, the working title for that message will be Christ the Long Promised Sacrifice. And, and I hope that you will, uh, stick with us for that. Throughout most of the passages we'll see this morning, God is speaking to Israel and to Judah. But we will see that the promise of restoration to God for sinners through the coming King applies to people from all nations of the earth, not merely to those who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hopefully, if you were here for our study of Ephesians, that was loud and clear. (laughs) Last week, we traced the unbroken, constantly narrowing line from Adam to Jesus that persists throughout the Old Testament from beginning to end. We saw that both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles like Matthew saw King David as the centerpiece of that line leading to Messiah and, of course, Christ as the point of that line. At the same time, uh, and, and I should, should mention that I said it last week, but I want to say it again. One of the most critically important things that we should both know and proclaim if we are true to the, to the biblical gospel 
is that Jesus Christ is the long-promised Messiah, King in the line of King David. It's huge. It's everywhere. You can't get away from that connection in the Bible, in either Testament. And the beautiful thing about pointing that out to people is it is it sets out on the table the fact that God spoke from ages past pointing to this Messiah, to this Savior, the long-promised Christ. It's easy to just kind of let that not be on the table, and, and God intends for it to be there. Uh, I'll just say this again. Remember uh, Acts 17, the first couple of verses, when Paul went from city to city and synagogue to synagogue, what was it that he presented in those synagogues? That the Christ had to die and be raised again from the dead, according to the Scriptures, the Old Testament. That's the Gospel. All right. Roughly 700 years before Christ's coming, the first time, God raised up a faithful prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah served as God's messenger during the latter part of the period of the kings of Israel and Judah. The kings of Israel were nearing an end. Uh, there were several to come still in the, in the line of Judah. Is, many Israelites were being taken away into captivity to Assyria when, when Isaiah stepped into the, into the picture. The book of Isaiah, like all of the other prophetic books in the Old Testament, (laughs) is heavily weighted toward passages announcing judgment. Announcing the impending judgment from the hand of God that will come upon Israel and Judah and upon the other nations because of sin. Because of rebellion against God, which is universal to mankind. God starts with, ju- with declarations of judgment against, against his own covenant people, Israel and Judah. But in Isaiah and Jeremiah, and the, especially in the major prophets, you see it extended to, to all of the peoples of the earth. Interspersed with that drumbeat of impending judgment is a recurring promise of deliverance that gets repeated and clarified and expanded over and over and over as the Old Testament revelation proceeds. That promise is all about the long-foretold coming king in the line of David who will restore God's people to God and will rule over them and over all the nations forever. Now, I'm going to start this morning by reading a very familiar passage from Isaiah chapter 9 that foretells the coming of Messiah. But I'm going to include some of the less well-known verses that come before the well-known part, just so that we can see in context that Isaiah starts with Israel in a judged condition, with Israel and Judah in a judged condition. Verse 1, chapter 9 of Isaiah, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. God did. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multi, and then he, and then he turns his God, through the prophet, turns his attention to this coming 
Messiah. And he speaks to him and he says, You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of the oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. And then comes the familiar part. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, and then literally Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Now what does this magnificent passage tell us about the coming King? It tells us He'll be born as a child, a son, He'll rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom in justice and righteousness. His righteous government and the peace, the the pervasive well-being that it brings to his people will never end. His rule will be from then on and forevermore. And Yahweh will zealously bring all of this about. Just two chapters later, Isaiah 11, after another round of prophecies of impending judgment against both Israel and Judah, we find another powerful prophecy of a deliverer and of a deliverance that will impact not just Israel and Judah, but all of mankind. Isaiah writes, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Isn't that a marvelous picture? And then this just blows me away. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If you were going to describe, if you're going to try to describe the ocean to somebody who didn't know anything at all about it, where would you start? Water. Right? The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the the sea. The knowledge of God will be as intrinsic to the nature of this world as water is to the ocean. I was in the shower last night sobbing over that line. I can't conceive of it. And I look around and I see the absolute antithesis of that in every place except among the people of God. But it's coming, beloved. 
The day is coming when the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. I finished that shower and I just kept saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of the people. He will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and He will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of His people who will be left just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, there will be a second exodus. I've mentioned before the book that Ron handed me a while back, Echoes of Exodus. It's a really good read, and it's not long. And it shows how this Exodus theme just pervades the Bible. And it's all pointing to Christ. The second Exodus, God will gather His people from the nations to which He has scattered them. He will bring them to their own land. And then he says, the whole earth, the whole earth, not just Israel and Judah, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. All the nations, not just Israel and Judah, will resort to the root of Jesse. And who is that? (laughs) It's Jesus. The one who will accomplish everything that's described in that passage, everything that's presented in that passage is described first as a shoot from the stem of Jesse, a branch from its roots. Well, David was the first the first celebrated uh, stem from Jesse. But this isn't about David. When Isaiah wrote this, David had been dead for 300 years. The righteous deliverer who will fill the whole earth with the knowledge of Yahweh isn't David. In the prophecies of the coming King of Kings, the one whom it is about is variously described as the root, the shoot, the vine, the branch. That wording is all over the place in the prophets. And it's about the, it's an image of a grapevine that brings life and fruitfulness to people who are dead in their sins. It's about redemption. See, Christ is the whole plant. He is the one who will restore rebellious men, women, and children to life and to fruitfulness for God. About a hundred years after Isaiah's time, when the northern kingdom of Israel had mostly been taken into captivity to Assyria, God raised up another faithful prophet named Jeremiah. Isaiah was about 700 years before Christ. Jeremiah was about 600 years before Christ. Jeremiah spoke on God's behalf during the time of the last few kings leading up to the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon. And Jeremiah prophesied for a time after the fall. In Jeremiah chapter 23, God pronounces a harsh indictment against the shepherds of Israel and Judah. When we... When the prophets refer to the shepherds, they're talking about all of those who were, who were given the stewardship of caring for and leading the people of God. So we're talking about kings, prophets, priests, people in government as well. Jeremiah records these words of the Lord. He says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying 
and shattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says, and, and you guys should know by now, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God that God gave when Moses said, who shall I say sent me in Exodus 3, okay? Sometimes I'm reading it, the Lord, because that's the way it is in the text. But it's always, that, that capitalized word is always the covenant name of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you. little word play there. For the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and I will bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I shall also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any of them be missing. No lost sheep, declares the Lord. And then this is just marvelous. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Yahweh, our righteousness. Does that sound anything like the New Testament Gospel? Three times in just those two verses. Righteousness. Verse 7, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, first Exodus, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I've driven them, then they will live on their own soil. Ten chapters later in Jeremiah 33, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah again. It says he was still confined in the court of the guards. See, Jeremiah had been arrested for speaking what God told him to speak. That happens. He said, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, Yahweh is His name, call to Me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. (laughs) Pick up your Bible sometime, that's what you'll find. (laughs) For thus the Lord God of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, and then it's all about judgment here, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword while they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans. That's the army Nebuchadnezzar sent down to destroy, to besiege and take Jerusalem. And to fill them with the corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath. See, it's not Nebuchadnezzar's anger that Israel needed to be worried about, that Judah needed to be worried about. It's the anger of God. Nebuchadnezzar was just a tool, an instrument. And I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. A year and a half, Nebuchadnezzar's armies besieged Jerusalem, cut off all food and water. If you want to read what happened in the city, 
back up about a thousand years to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And it'll tell you what happened in the city of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city. It'll tell you in vivid, gory detail. Israel deserved the fierce wrath of God. Judah deserved the fierce wrath of God. The nations deserved the fierce, unrelenting, uncompromising wrath of God. But look at what comes next. Very next verse. Behold, I will bring to it, to that city, health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them in abundance an overflowing fountain of peace and truth. And I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me, the city shall be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth which shall hear of all the good that I do for them. And they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. That's the fear that attracts, beloved. Thus says the Lord, yet again there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man and beast that is in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. There shall be heard in that place the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to Yahweh of hosts, for Yahweh is good for His loving kindness. His steadfast covenant love is everlasting. And the voice of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. So you see the contrast between what His people deserve and what He's going to give to them? Thus says the Lord of hosts, The flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, under their shepherd, says the Lord. Behold, days are coming, (laughs) declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken. The good word which I have spoken. In other words, this had been said before concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Behold, in those days and at that time, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And and this is the name by which she, the city, will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So when these things come to pass, there will be one from the line of David sitting on his throne from then on. Now, I'm just going to list a few things. This isn't all of them. A few things that, uh, that we glean from the two passages we just read from Jeremiah. And I want to ask yourself, uh, I want you to ask yourself 
do you see any of the gospel in the New Testament in this? And also, do you see this this connection, this inseparable connection between the long-promised king and the long-promised redemption from sin and from the, from the, the judgment of God? Uh, we see in the passages that God is going to gather His people from the nations to which He scattered them and bring, bring them to their own land. He will bring them to health and healing. He will restore their fortunes. He will cleanse them from all their sin and pardon them from the penalty for their sin. See, He'll get, he'll get rid of the sin. He'll cleanse them from the sin and He will pardon the penalty for the sin. He will fulfill the good word, the covenant promises that He has spoken that He'd been speaking for a long time concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All the nations of the earth will hear of all the good that God will do for Israel and Judah and will tremble in fear of the one true God. In fulfillment of the good word that God had already spoken concerning Israel and Judah, He will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and He will execute justice and righteousness not just in Israel and Judah, but on the earth. And here's this is great, guys. The name of that king, that long-promised king, will be Yahweh, our righteousness. And the name of the city from which he rules will be Yahweh is our righteousness. Hmm. A righteousness not their own. A righteousness whose source is not themselves. A righteousness whose source is the long-promised king whose name is Yahweh, our righteousness. Does that sound anything like the good news in the New Testament? He made him who knew no sin, sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, only because our time is limited, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of passages that are relevant here. And I'm going to pick it up in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. After the period of the kings of Israel and Judah, after 70 years of Judah's captivity in Babylon, or at the end of that time, after some of the Judahites had returned to Palestine from captivity in Babylon, Zerubbabel, the governor of Jerusalem, and we saw last week, is in the lineage leading to Christ. And a priest named Joshua were commissioned by God to complete the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem that had been halted for a time because of opposition in the region. Two prophets, first Haggai and then Zechariah, acted as God's messengers to the the Judahites who had returned from Babylon and were there in Jerusalem at that time. In Zechariah 3, God gave this vision to His faithful prophet. This is dynamite. Then He showed me Joshua, the high priest, and just for whatever it's worth, Joshua, Hebrew Yehoshua, is the Hebrew precursor to the name Jesus. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing right beside him to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, before Satan said a word, Yahweh said, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, literally excrement-covered garments. 
and was standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, this is the angel of Yahweh speaking, remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they, they did, and they clothed him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. And the angel of Yahweh admonished Joshua saying, thus, <laughs> thus says Yahweh of hosts, if you walk in my ways and if you perform my service, then you will also govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will grant you free access among those who are standing there. And then verse 8, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, and really pay attention here, guys, please. Listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. What's a symbol? It's a pointer to something bigger and better, something that is the substance to which the symbol points. You are men who are a symbol, for behold, and then he tells them what they're a symbol of. He tells them what Joshua is a symbol of. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. And then a few verses later, he says, in fact, in the next verse, I will remove the iniquity of that land in a single day. In the Old Testament, you know what the standard of a really decisive victory was? It was one in a single day. Like when David slew Goliath and they destroyed the whole army of the Philistines in one day. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and his fig tree. Images of deliverance, of abundance, of provision. So what happened in that amazing vision? Well, the high priest Joshua was in front of the judgment seat of God. Satan was right beside him, chomping at the bit to accuse him. And he had plenty to accuse him of. He's covered in, he's, he's wearing robes covered in excrement. And Joshua, being the high priest, represents the people before God. So all of Jerusalem, all of the people who had come back from, from Babylon and were supposed to be rebuilding the temple, Joshua is standing there and God, and in this vision, Zechariah is seeing that they're all, they're all unclean at the highest possible level or the lowest possible level in the eyes of God. They are toast before God. Satan would have had no trouble finding evidence for his accusations, but before he could utter a word, God said, silence. This one is a brand plucked from the fire. What happens when you take a coal from from a fire? You take it out of the fire. Well, it's not, the fire's not fed by the rest of the coals and there might be something saved there, right? But if you leave it in the fire, what happens? It turns to ash. It's destined to destruction. It's judged in this image. And then God says to Joshua, see, I, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you in festal robes. And then he places He replaces Joshua's excrement-covered robe with a robe of state, the beauty and royalty, and he sets him over his people. And God tells this mortal high priest 
that he's just a symbol. He's a pointer to a greater reality. And he tells him what the greater reality is. It's my servant, the branch. You know, that the other prophets had been talking about. And the bringing in of this one called the branch will also bring about the removal of the sin of the whole land in a single day. So if Joshua is a symbol, who's the real high priest of God who would accomplish the removal of the sin of God's people in a single day? Does that sound anything like the Gospel in the New Testament? Three chapters later in Zechariah, God gave the same prophet these instructions involving the same priest, Joshua. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. And he already told Joshua he was just a symbol of that man. So he says, now he's taking this high priest, he's putting a crown on his head, and he's saying, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two. And I think that means the two offices of priest and king. He will build the temple of the Lord. You know what the temple is throughout the Old Testament? It is the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. It's not just God's place. It's the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. He'll not only build the temple of the Lord, He will branch out and spread the temple of the Lord over the whole earth. Greg Beale has another marvelous book that Ron gave me a while back that that talks about the fact that from the beginning of His plan of redemption, God is in the process of spreading His presence in His creation across the world, His temple. Everything in this prophecy that follows the crowning of Joshua is stated in future tense. It's something that will happen later, after the prophecy was given. Joshua is once again presented not as the fulfillment of the promises made here, but as a symbol of the one who will fulfill those promises. And God told us who that was. He mentioned that same person way back in 2 Samuel 7, 500 years before this, when he made the promise to David. He said, I will raise up your descendant, singular, after you, who will come from you And I will establish His kingdom and He will build a house for My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I hope, beloved, I hope that you're seeing that this is consistent. That that the Old Testament is talking about the same person all along. Nearly 500 years after David died, God restates the same promise concerning the same descendant of David the righteous branch of David, and this time that promise is given to a man serving in the role of high priest. So we have a high priest who's also a king. He removes the sin of his people in a single day. He builds the temple, the dwelling place of God among men, and he branches out and spreads that temple over the whole earth. Does that sound anything like the Gospel in the New Testament? It does, and beloved, it it sounds like the Gospel in the New Testament, not in some sort of subtle, unsearchable, esoteric way that someone might, through hermeneutical acrobatics, manage to somehow associate with Christ if he jumps through enough hoops. 
This is the same righteous servant of God, the same sinless and sin-bearing anointed high priest of God, the same redemption from sin that restores sinners to God, the same King of kings, the same glorious gospel of the same long-promised Christ in both Testaments. The prophet Ezekiel, I'm backing up a little bit again to roughly the time of Jeremiah. The prophet Ezekiel spoke for God during about the same time as Jeremiah. Mostly during the reign of the last king of Judah, named Zedekiah, leading up to the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Again, this is roughly 600 years before Jesus came from heaven to earth the first time. The passage I'm about to read immediately follows a stinging, stinging indictment of God against all of the shepherds that he had placed over Israel, just as we saw in, Jer- in Jeremiah. In fact, in Ezekiel, God told, through, through the prophet, told Judah that instead of feeding and caring for his sheep, his sheep, the shepherds had neglected them, left them unprotected, eaten their food, and worse, sheared them and eaten the sheep. God tells Israel a time is coming when that state of affairs will be no more. He says, then I will set over them one shepherd my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. So, my servant David is the shepherd. My servant David is the prince. But David's been dead for 300 years here. And I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their season and they will be showers of blessing. And the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am Yahweh." when I have broken the bars of their, of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be a prey to the nations and the beasts of the field, the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely and no one will make them afraid. I will sta- establish for them a renowned planting place and they will not again be victims of famine in the land and they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore then they will know that I, Yahweh, their God, am with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Again, God promises He will set over Israel one shepherd. He calls that shepherd my servant, David. He will deliver them from those who have enslaved them. He will make a covenant of peace. And the word peace, shalom, means pervasive well-being in all aspects of life that comes to, to men only one way in its usage in the Bible, and that is through relationship with the living God. In keeping with that covenant of pervasive well-being, He will protect them completely from earthly threats, from beasts, from enemies, from drought, from famine. Ever seen that happen? Not yet. They will know that God is with them, that He is their God, and they are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Two chapters later, in Ezekiel 36, 
God brings yet another scathing indictment against Israel and Judah. And this is amazing. He says that when he sent them away into exile, into Assyria and Babylon, that instead of honoring his name among those nations, they profaned his name. And he says, okay, you profaned my name in those nations. I'm going to vindicate my name. He says, I will vindicate my name in the nations where you, Israel and Judah, profaned it. Now, if you're an Israelite, if you're a Judahite, Israelites hadn't come back, but if you're a Judahite and you receive that prophecy, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, I think God's about to drop the hammer. He's going to vindicate his name against us because we profaned it. Now, let's see how he vindicates it. This is how he vindicates his name. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then listen, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. How will God vindicate his holy name that his people profaned? Let's see, he'll gather them, bring them to their land, cleanse them from their filthiness and idolatry, turn their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, put his spirit in them and make them walk in his law. They will be his people and he will be their God. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? And then this, and this just blows me away. Ezekiel 37, next chapter. After prophecy about raising the dead dry bones of Israel, putting meat on them and bringing them to life, and then taking Judah and Israel, like, like two sticks and making them one and bringing them back together, we have this prophecy. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, and the capital G-O-D is Yahweh, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from every side and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king over all of them and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And then listen, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. They will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And my servant David will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of well-being with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The reign of God's servant who bears the name of David because he is from the line of David, the perfect David, 
The reign of that servant as shepherd king over his people will bring about the restoration of his people to the place that he has prepared for them. It will bring about an everlasting covenant of peace between God and his people. It will bring about the end of sinful rebellion, the end of all transgression, the cleansing of his people. They will be his people. He will be their God and his dwelling place will be in their midst forever, forever. Does any of that sound like the good news in the New Testament? Beloved, that's the perfection of the good news in the New Testament. That is the culmination of the good news in the New Testament. That's the end point to which the entire Bible has pointed from the fall of Adam to the end of the book of Revelation. And it was written 600 years before Christ came the first time. Here's something that was written a little more recently. And tell me if you see some of the same things. Behold, or then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and He will dwell among them and they will be His people and God Himself will be among them and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away and He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Many of the passages that we've just seen, many that we haven't seen in these messages so far, declare that these precious and magnificent promises extend beyond Israel and Judah, way beyond. A passage we didn't have time to look at is Isaiah 19. Just write that down, Isaiah 19. It says God's going to send a champion and a savior to Egypt and deliver them. And he'll build a highway between Egypt and Assyria. And the last two verses of that passage, listen. In that day, Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. The only thing missing from the passages we've just seen and that we saw last week is the specifics of the how. How the righteous shepherd, king, and priest accomplishes our cleansing from sin and our restoration to God without compromising the holiness of a perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God. But that's in the Old Testament too, and that's what we'll look at next time. Dear Father, we're filled with awe and gratitude. What an incomparable gift you have given to us through your faithful prophets and apostles. It's one miraculous witness to the one and only King of kings and Savior of all mankind. Dear Father, make us, make us faithful to boldly proclaim to the souls still enslaved in the darkness that the light has come and we have beheld him and we know him. He is the very one that you have promised relentlessly from ages past. We look forward with eager anticipation 
to the glorious day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray.